If you guys have your Bibles, um, why don't we open them? We're going to be in the book of James tonight. So turn them to James chapter 1. All right, and then for tonight, we're going to be in James 1, verses 1 to 8. Um, so let me read it for us, and then let me open in order of prayer. So James 1, starting in verse 1. It says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let's pray. Father, as we begin a new study um, in this portion of your word, uh, we thank you for uh, all that it has to teach us. We thank you that it's relevant to our everyday lives, um, that your word is not silent, um, and in fact, it speaks into uh, maybe the parts of our lives that are hardest for us to understand, um, including our trials and our suffering. Um, thank, you, God, thank you, God, that you address those, that we're not left in the dark um, with how to think about them. And so, Father, as we look into what your word has to say about it tonight, uh, we pray that you would grant us understanding, um, help us to, as James encourages us to really consider uh, your purposes behind um, some of the things that happen in our lives and help us to desire Christ's likeness more, um, to be made more and more holy and more perfect and more complete. And so accomplish that through your word um, tonight. We thank you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so as you guys know, we're starting a new study in the book of James. We've been going through a, a few weeks of just topical um, different things, but we're going to be jumping back into just going sequentially through a letter, a book of the Bible, and it's going to be the book of James. And if you know anything about this letter or this book, uh, it's a pretty unique book in the Bible, in the New Testament. Um, if you know the Apostle Paul's letters or his epistles, and if they're on like one end of the spectrum of being like really theological, really logical, um, really gospel-centered, then you can kind of imagine James as like on the opposite end of that. Uh, it, it doesn't include a lot of theology. In fact, James only mentions Jesus himself two times in this letter. Uh, but maybe more than any other book in the New Testament, James is all about practical wisdom for the everyday stuff of life. Okay, practical wisdom for the everyday stuff of life. There are in just 109 verses in the book of James, there's 59 commands. And as we read through this, the hardest part about reading this letter is not really understanding what James is saying. It's putting into practice what he says. Right? The hard part is actually doing and living out what he teaches us. Um, and so that's why I think it's going to be beneficial for us as a group to go through this because I know that especially for now for you guys right now in college, that's one of the hardest challenges for us, right, is to live out our faith, um, to really put it into practice, the things that we believe. 
And as we go through this, uh, James is going to touch on a lot of different things. He's going to talk about everything from trials to planning for the future um, to think how we should think or to how we should think through uh, like being rich and money, um, and even to the way that we use our words. And all of that, I hope you see, is relevant. All of that is stuff that we encounter every single day of our lives. And the question that James is going to ask us over and over again is, does your faith really impact the way that you live? Right? Are you really living out what you believe in? Um, let me just give you a real quick background of this book. If you look in verse 1 of our passage, uh, it says that it, this is a letter that's written by James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you know anything about the Bible, there, there's a few different Jameses in the Bible that we read about. There is James the Apostle, right? The, one of the three, Peter, James, and John. Um, the one that wrote the letter of James is not that James. Uh, the one that most likely wrote the letter of James is James, the brother of Jesus. And if you remember from some of the gospel accounts, uh, if you remember anything about Jesus' brothers, uh, you know that they actually didn't believe in Jesus. Right? Like they didn't think he was the Messiah, even though they grew up with him, even though they lived with him, uh, spent their days with him, uh, but they didn't believe in him. And we read later on in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul tells us that this James here, the, letter of this, or the author of this letter, was actually one of the people that Jesus appeared to after he rose from the dead. Okay, after his resurrection, he appeared to James. And so that might have been the turning point for James, because after that, we see him actually come to faith. We see him become this leader of the Jerusalem church in Acts 15. Okay, that's, that's that James that we're talking about. Um, and so for any of you that maybe are, this is kind of just a minor point, but for any of you who have been praying for um, or witnessing to like unsaved friends or family, um, I hope like this letter of James is an encouragement to you that even James's own brother, or Jesus' own brother, didn't believe in him at first. Right? Like, even though he walked with Jesus and knew him, he didn't believe in him. But God ends up saving him and even using him to write this letter that we get to read um, throughout the centuries. And I, in fact, I think we get a hint of how much Jesus' teaching left an impression on James because if you compare this letter to uh, the Sermon on the Mount, right, Matthew 5 through 7, Jesus' teaching, there's a lot of parallel. Uh, and so we kind of see the impact that Jesus had on his brother. So that's the author. Who is he writing to? Uh, look at verse 1. He says, it's, the recipients of this letter are the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Um, so the, the recipients were probably Jewish Christians. The 12 tribes are referring to the 12 tribes of Israel, um, the Jews. And that word, their dispersion, is referring to the fact that many of them had been scattered or they've been displaced from their homes. Uh, probably because of persecution. You can read about that in Acts 7, when Stephen, one of the first martyrs, was, was killed. That led to just uh, kind of the Jews being displaced and, and scattered all about. So that's the, the author, that's the recipient. Um, when you, so knowing all of that in mind, right, knowing that that's the background, it's fitting then, when, when we open to chapter 1 of this letter, that we begin with this word on trials, right? Enduring trials. And throughout this letter, you're going to see that James seems to jump around from one thing to another to another, and it's hard to follow maybe his flow of things. Um, but I think at least in chapter 1, from verses 1 to 18, 
the overarching theme of this section is on the topic of trials, enduring trials. And he talks about that in verse 2 and also in verse 12. Now, I'm sure that for whatever reason, for all of you in here, uh, you all have at least a little bit of just really random or really useless information stored in your brain, right? Like, for whatever reason, you know something that is probably never going to be useful to you. Um, it's, it's the kind of stuff that someone would say, like, why would you ever need to know that? And maybe you'd know sports statistics, maybe you know the lines of a movie really just by heart uh, for whatever reason. Maybe you feel that way about some of your classes that you're taking, like some of the GEs that you're forced to take. Like, why am I ever going to use this? Why do I need to care about this? Uh, I confess that when I was in seminary, I wasn't the best student, so don't follow my example. Uh, but one of the questions I would ask myself a lot is, when it came to my work, um, was, am I even going to use this in the future? Right? And if my answer to that question was no, then I would not spend much time on that assignment. Um, I, would use, I would spend more time on things that I thought would be useful. Right? And um, in my mind, that's just a matter of work smarter, not harder. <laughs> well, when it comes to this, this topic of trials, we don't have to worry about that. Right? We don't have to worry about whether we're actually ever going to use this. Why? Well, because as you guys obviously know, we all experience trials. Right? We all experience suffering. And for all of you here, you are, uh, I can confidently say, you're either coming out of some sort of trial, you are currently in some sort of trial, or, hate to break it to you, but you're about to enter into some sort of trial. Right? That's probably true of all of you in here. Um, that's a common experience. And in fact, when you look in our passage, James says, them, uh, says this himself. Right? When you look at verse 2, he says, uh, Count it all joy, my brothers. And then that next word there is when. When you meet trials of various kinds. He doesn't say if you meet trials, like in, in, the, in the remote possibility that this happens in your life. No, he says when right, you meet trials. Um, and trials and suffering, even if you don't think that you've experienced anything significant yet, and that might be true of you, that they are inevitable and they are expected for us as believers in this world. In fact, the way that Paul puts it in Philippians 1.29 is that suffering has been actually granted to you. And that's an interesting word to use, right? That it's uh, just as it's been granted, actually in that same verse, he says, just as it's been granted to you to believe in Jesus, right, your faith, it's been granted to you to suffer for his sake. Um, and so trials are uh, inevitable reality in our lives. And not only that, and um, I think this next point is something we should be thankful for, but when you look at how James describes trials, he says uh, trials of various kinds, Right? So he leaves it um, intentionally broad for us. He's not like being super specific so that we can relate to this, right? so that we can listen to what he has to say. That there are various kinds of suffering that we will all experience, some more significant, some less significant, um, some maybe now in this season of your life, some maybe later in the future. And so when it comes to to suffering and trials, knowing that this is going to happen in our lives if it's not happening already, the best time for us to build a solid theology of suffering is before they come, 
right? It's ahead of time. It's not when you're smack dab in the middle of your suffering and that's how you're going to learn about suffering, right? We suffer well when we know uh, what to do, what to think about it before it comes, right? We suffer well when we are prepared. Now, here's how I think James helps us to think about suffering in this passage. Uh, One of the, the really helpful things that Pastor Tim has mentioned often is that when it comes to uh, our Christian lives, when it comes to repentance, right? You might, have, you might remember him saying that the goal is not to become sin experts, but Christ experts, right? Not to become sin experts, but Christ experts. That what he means by that is we don't fight sin well by just zooming in on like the nature of sin, the nature of temptation, though all of that's useful and helpful. But the way that we fight sin well ultimately is by uh, becoming experts on Christ, right? By knowing him better, by beholding him more, by, by following him more. And I think when we look at our passage tonight, I think we get a similar idea. That James intends to give us more than just, uh, quote-unquote, the right answer. I think James intends to give us more than just, like, this is the proper theological perspective. This is just the right way that we should respond uh, in trials as believers, And yes, those ideas are in our passage, right? We're going to read about them. But I think maybe more big picture and more importantly, James highlights who God is in our trials. Okay, who God is. That we're called to respond a certain way, but I think James wants us to know that God responds in our trials too. Right, like God is doing something in our trials too. And so it's in light of who he is that we as believers can endure. It's in light of who God is and what he does in our trials that we can maximize our time in them, right? We can get out of them all that he intends for us to get out of them. And so as we jump in, um, let me just encourage you, I think it'd be helpful uh, to just think of a specific trial in your life. Maybe one that you are coming out of, maybe one that you're currently in the middle of, uh, maybe even one that you're afraid that you have to face in the future. Think about a trial, bring that to mind, um, David Pallison, he says that we live in specifics, not generalities, right? Uh, we don't just live by, according to these abstract general ideas. And so think about a specific trial, even write it down if you need to. And as we go through this, think about how does this passage minister to you in that specific trial? Okay, I have two points for us. We're going to look at two reasons why we can endure in trials. Okay, two reasons why we can endure in trials. Uh, Point number one is God's purpose in our trials, our maturity and joy. Um, Look at verse two again. So James says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. You can stop right there. Now, what does James mean by trials here? Well, if you look at verse three, I think he helps define it for us, and we can define trials broadly as anything that tests our faith. Okay, anything that tests our faith. And I think there's a couple ideas there. That one, if the trials that we experience in our lives are tests, then that means that they're not random, right? Um, Hopefully, you've never had to take a pointless test or exam before. Um, I know you might feel like they're pointless sometimes, but there's a purpose to them, right? The purpose is to see how much of the material you know. That's the purpose behind taking a test. Um, And if you have taken a pointless test, hopefully you didn't study too much for it. Um, But our trials have a purpose. 
right? They're, they're not random. They're meant uh, with, they're, in, they're designed or intended with an end in mind. What are they test of? Well, verse 3 says they are test of our faith, right? And so the second thing I want to point out is that they are spiritual, right? There's a spiritual element to them. And James says our trials are a help to and they're intended to reveal the true nature of something, and that something is our faith, right? Trials reveal the true nature of our faith. Um, and so that's the situation, okay? When you meet trials of various kinds, what should we do? And James says, count it all joy. Okay, count it all joy. Um, now I know that James 1, 2-4 is one of those like famous go-to passages for suffering. Right? How many of you guys have heard this passage before? Two, uh, many of you, right? Like, um, I think we're all familiar with this, and it's one of the beloved passages in Scripture. But the downside of these kinds of passages is that we don't actually spend enough time considering what it actually says because we think we're already familiar with it, right? We think we already understand it. But think about it this way. Um, have you ever had someone quote this to you when you were suffering, right? Oh, you just lost your job? Count it all joy, brother, sister, right? Be warmed and be filled. When they quoted it to you, how did you feel about it? Now, for those of you who are uh, really godly and really gracious, maybe you were really thankful for it and you're very helped by it. Um, but I think for me, depending on the circumstances, depending on how it was communicated, uh, if someone told me, like, in the face of trial or suffering, hey, just, like, count it all joy, that might seem like a slap to the face, right? Like, that might seem very unfeeling or not very helpful, and like, I, I just lost something or someone. I just experienced this reality or th this really difficult, uh, maybe even dev devastating thing in my life. And now, not only are you telling me to do something, you're telling me, what you're telling me to do is that I should be joyful, right? I should just be happy uh, rather than upset. Now, I hope that we're more helpful friends than that, right? I hope we're, more, we're better counselors than that. Um, but as theologically true as James' statement is here, right, that we can count our trials as joy, I think what he is saying is more than just that kind of Christian cliche. Right? He's not just like giving us uh, like a band-aid where we can just paste on top of whatever, hap whatever bad happens in our lives. When he says to count it all joy, contrary to what some people might think, James is not saying that Christians should just be happy all the time. Okay. Um, have you ever had someone show you a really funny, quote marks, really funny YouTube video that actually wasn't very funny? I feel like that's one of the kind of like universally understood awkward social situations, right? Like that one friend uh, like wants to show everybody else this really funny video that they found the other day, and so. You know, you know what happens, right? Like, we all huddle around this little phone, and we have to pretend for, like, three or four minutes that this video is just as funny as they said it was, right? You're, like, pretending that you're having a good time, and then at the very end, you hope that they don't click one of the related videos, because then you have to start it all over again. That's not what James is saying. He's not just saying, uh, pretend this is fun, right? Like, pretend you're having a good time in the middle of your trials, when James says to count, 
right, or other translations, is to consider. Um, he's not talking so much about how to feel as he is about how to think. Okay, how to think. He is talking about the mentality that you have, the perspective that you're looking at things with. Uh, he's talking about your view of life. Uh, let me just talk about emotions for a bit. This is not really the main point, but as Christians, we are given the freedom, and we're even called to feel emotions. And I think emotions, they, they matter to God, um, and they're helpful for us because they're a window into our own hearts. Um, in fact, uh, the false perception that, or contrary to the false perception that Christians are just supposed to be happy all the time, uh, actually the Bible describes the emotions that we should feel as Christians as really complex, right? It says um, in 2 Corinthians 6.10, it says that we should be grieving yet always rejoicing. What does that even mean? You know, like grieving and also rejoicing. Um, and so I think scripture shows us that at least in terms of emotions, there's a, a depth that, that uh, to our emotions as believers that we experience that maybe even the world doesn't understand, right? It says that we're supposed to weep with those who weep. Um, and so James is not trying to minimize the way that we feel. What he does say is that in your experience of trials, that we as Christians can step back a little bit and we can consider a bigger picture, right? When we think rightly, when we have the right perspective, then we can find reason for pure joy. And notice there, he doesn't say only joy. He doesn't say exclusively joy. Uh, he, he doesn't even say, like, find the silver lining, right? Like, just try to find something good. He says that we have real reason for a genuine joy. And what is that reason? Verse 3. He says, For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So he says that trials or the testing of your faith, that they accomplish something. And one of the purposes of trials is, he says, they produce steadfastness. Okay, Paul says something similar in Romans 5. He says, uh, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, character produces hope. Uh, the idea there is that there are some things in this life that, we, that can only be learned if we exercise that muscle, so to speak, right? If we're actually forced to learn it. Um, and, and for something like steadfastness or endurance, to learn that, it takes being in circumstances that forces us to practice it, right? That's what trials do. But if you look at it, steadfastness is not the end goal, right? As, as nice sounding, as admirable as steadfastness sounds, uh, I think that in itself is not appealing enough right, for us to endure trials. There's more to that. James says, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And I think he says the same idea there are three different ways. He says perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. That as you endure trials with increasing steadfastness, that God grows you into wholeness. Right? He brings you into maturity. He brings you into Christ-likeness. He, he grows you into who he has created you to be and intended you to become. And if you think about it, that's always been God's purpose in everything, right? To bring you into Christ-likeness, into holiness. Um, I know some of you were with me at USC yesterday. We did a Bible study on the doctrine of sanctification. 
Um, and I was reminded of this quote where uh, someone wrote that many are prone to imagine nothing else to be meant by salvation but to be delivered from hell and to enjoy heavenly happiness and glory. Right? Like that's all we think about when we think about salvation is to be saved from hell and to be granted entrance into heaven. And that's, that's salvation for us. But I think the Bible shows us that salvation is so much more than we think, right? It's, it's not just saving us from something, it's saving us towards something. Uh, in other words, if someone were to ask you, hey, do you want God to save you from hell and to allow you to enter into heaven? Uh, we would all say yes, right? Of course. But if they were also to say, okay, do you want God to save you from present sin in your heart, even if that means suffering. How many of us would also say yes to that? And yet, that is part of salvation, right? That's what God uses trials to do. And James says, when trials come, you can count it all joy because you are going to be more like Jesus on the other side of this, right? That's where God is bringing you. That is what God is accomplishing in you through it. And so, let me ask you, is that good enough for you? Like, is that reason enough for you to endure in your trials? Is that worthwhile enough for you to even find joy in your suffering? And I know that's not an easy question to answer, right? Because I think if we're honest with ourselves, uh, often for us we say, no, that's not good enough, right? That's, why couldn't God teach me the same thing another way without the suffering, or we can look around at other people and we can say, well, why does it seem that other people seem to be growing and doing well while I'm the one who has to deal with all of this trial in my life, all of this suffering that's going on? And I think that question, right, is that enough for you? I think that question gets to one of the ways that God uses trials to move us towards Christ-likeness, which is that trials reveal the things that we really want, Right? Trials reveal the things that we really treasure and the things that we really care about. Um, Paul Tripp, he has a helpful illustration in which he takes this uh, water bottle and he, he takes off the cap and it's filled with water and he shakes the bottle so that water uh, obviously starts to spill out of it. Right? And the question he asks is, why is there water everywhere? Why is water uh, you know, coming out of the bottle? And the first answer you might think of is, well, it's because you shook the bottle, right? That's the reason why water is spilling everywhere. But when you think about it, the more fundamental answer is that there's water everywhere because there was water already inside. The situation didn't create that. The situation just drew it out of our hearts. And that's what trials do for us, right? They help to reveal our hearts. They help to reveal what's really underneath the surface, and the only reason or the only way that we can grow is if those hidden areas of our hearts uh, no longer remain hidden to us, right? If we actually shine the spotlight on them. What trials do is that they expose the sin in our hearts. They show us the ugly parts of us that God intends to change. They're the, the doctor's scans that show us where the medicine needs to be administered. They reveal to us what we've really been placing our hope in, what we've really been looking uh, to for salvation and fulfillment. So, for example, it might take uh, the trial of stress or struggling academically to reveal to you just how much 
value and just how much stock you've placed in your grades and in your ability. Or it might take the trial of unemployment in the future to reveal to you just your wrong belief that the way to a comfortable life is, and the way to avoid trouble is just to have a stable job. Or it might take the trial of a breakup in your life, right, to show you just how much hope that you've wrongly placed in another person to fulfill you. And often, it's painful to, to realize these things, right? It's painful to have these things revealed to us. Like, who wants to be shown that they actually, like, are an angrier person than they think? Or that we're, you know, more anxious or more stressful than we actually think we are? You know, Scripture tells us that it's for our good. Right? It's for our good. And it's part of God's bigger and his more glorious agenda for our change. Uh, the way that Jesus describes it is that it's pruning. If you guys know what pruning is, it's, it's cutting off branches. But it's not just cutting off branches for the sake of like removing things. It's allowing the rest of the plant to be healthy and the rest of the plant to grow. Um, Peter, he says it's refining a, a precious metal of its impurities. And again, it's not just like removing stuff for the sake of removing stuff. Like you're, you're refining metal in order to make it more valuable. Right, in order to improve it. And so for you tonight, what is it that your heart really desires? Do you really care most about being formed into the image of Christ? Um, or do you care more about that thing that you might have lost when the trial came? Right, whether that's your comfort or your plans or your relationships or your reputation. Do you hate your sin in your heart more than the suffering that's happening to you? Do you desire holiness rather than uh, superficial happiness? Now, there's an important part to this that I think we can't afford to miss. If you look at verse 4, um, there's a condition here. Right? So Paul's, or James says, he says, being made perfect and complete, lacking in nothing, happens when we allow steadfastness to have its full effect. Right? So one, it's something that takes time. Okay? It takes time for it to have its full effect, but more importantly, I think James shows us we have to respond in the right way. And I think that's important for us to know because uh, I think often the case is trials for us can seem like an excuse to just ignore our responsibility. Right? Like all of a sudden, we can just turn off being a Christian and we can just turn on being like a victim or a sufferer. Right? We're still called to live as believers in the midst of our suffering. That as purposeful as God has intended your suffering to be, that it can still be wasted in a sense, right? It can form you into godliness or it can move you further away from it. Now, what's the difference, right? How do we get from one to the other? Well, I think the idea of steadfastness means that we're willing to remain under whatever God has brought into our lives, that we embrace it, right? We accept what God has brought in. And so for you tonight, are you willing to embrace your trials as God's agent of change in your life? Or have you become so obsessed with, like, have you spent just all your time trying to escape it or trying to reject it or just complaining about why God has allowed it in your life? Um, think about your attitude in your trials. Is your attitude one of humility, right? Are you taking God at his word and what he says about your trials? Um, and are you willing to just let go of your own thinking, your own wisdom? Are your trials causing you to turn in faith to God for help or are they driving you away from them? And so this leads us to our second point, 
Right? So what does God do when we turn to him in our trials? Point number two, God's provision in our trials, the wisdom that we need. Wisdom that we need. So verse five, James says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. Um, so in verse five, James, he seems to shift his focus a little bit to the topic of wisdom. And I think this general principle is true in all of life. But in the context here, he is still talking about the, the topic of trials, specifically. And I think we know that because there's a couple ways that James links us back to what he just talked about. Um, first, in verse 4, he says that, that trials are God's means of forming us into being complete, lacking in nothing. Right? That phrase there, lacking in nothing. And in verse 5, he says, if you do lack anything, right, specifically wisdom, then let him ask God. And then second, I think we mentioned earlier that James says in verse 3, uh, he says, for you know, right? Like this is something that you might already be familiar with, um, that truth in verse 3. That might already be a piece of your theology. But obviously it takes more than just knowing something, right? It takes more than just head knowledge for something to be useful. That we don't just need knowledge, we need wisdom. And that's what he's going to talk about in these next few verses. Um, wisdom, I think we can define as the skillful application of knowledge to life. The skillful application of that knowledge to our everyday lives. And I think for us, if there's ever time when we really desperately need wisdom, it's when we're in trials. Right, isn't it? I think we can all relate to that. That suffering and trials can uh, flip all that we knew, all that we believed in, upside down. Right? Like life just doesn't make sense in our suffering. And I think here, um, when James says wisdom, I, I think it can mean a lot of different things. Like, it literally could be, like, I don't know what the next thing to do is. Right? I don't even know how to begin to get up from this. What's the next step to take? Uh, practical wisdom, right, for what to do next. And I think God pr promises to provide that. But I think in the context of our passage, uh, we can understand what James means by wisdom here as, maybe broadly, the ability to see from God's perspective. The ability to see from God's perspective. And again, like there's a condition that James lays out for us, right? Verse 6, he says, But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So what is James saying there? Well, I don't think that he's saying that we as Christians can never doubt. Okay, I don't think he's saying that like any ounce of doubt just automatically voids God's promise to give us wisdom when we ask. Um, if that were the case, then this seems like just an utterly impossible condition. Right? I think rather what James is saying, and that word there in verse 8, uh, double-minded, is talking about someone who has divided loyalties. Okay, divided loyalties. That the double-minded man might subscribe to what the Bible says, but only up to the point that it agrees with him. That there is this sort of like wavering, like you're, you're constantly jumping back and forth between what God says and what the world says and, and what you think is right. And really, at the end of the day, the double-minded person just believes what he wants to believe. Right? He only agrees with God when, when God fits in with his, what he believes already, when God agrees with what he wants. And so that's the kind of person I think that James is warning against. 
Um, I think how that plays, for, plays out for us, or one of the ways that that plays for, out for us is uh, when we refuse to listen to the counsel of others when it's not what we want to hear. Right? Maybe you guys have been in that situation. Like someone tells you something, tries to encourage you or give you advice, and like we don't want to hear it because we don't like what they had what they had to say. Now, don't get me wrong. If you're the person who's giving counsel, there are ways in which we can be helpful, and there are ways in which we can be unhelpful. Right? There are ways that we we can make the person want to hear us, and there are ways we can make the person not want to hear us. Okay, so that's true. There's skill in that, but as the one who's receiving counsel. I think the question is, are you humbly receiving the wisdom from God that he might be speaking through others? Right? Are you, are, or are you a double-minded man? Are you uh, wavering back and forth between what you think and what God thinks? Are you only willing to listen to whatever fits your agenda? Rather, James says that we are to ask God in faith. Right? We are to ask with the expectation that God will provide, with expectation that he will respond because that's what he promised in his word. We're, we're called to ask with a humble trust in his word, right? In faith, in him, as opposed to uh, a faith maybe in our own wisdom or in our own expertise. And this is the kind of God that responds, right? James says that this God, uh, verse, sorry, Verse 5, right? This is the God who responds that he gives generously to all without reproach. That's who God is to us. And uh, that idea of without reproach, I think, can be translated as without finding fault. Okay, without finding fault. Um, You've all probably heard someone say before that there are no stupid questions. Maybe a professor has told that to you. Maybe a friend has told that to you. And even though that's really encouraging to hear, right, we all know that that's not true, right? Like, there are obviously stupid questions. Um, and unfortunately, sometimes we're the one with the stupid questions. Um, and do you know what the smart thing to do in that situation is? It's you hope that someone else in the room has that also, also that stupid question, so they ask for you, um, so you don't have to look bad. What happens often when someone does ask a stupid question is, uh, maybe you've been in lecture or class before, uh, and someone asks like really obvious question. You'll hear people snicker, right? Or you'll hear people laugh, or uh, someone might like just facepalm, or the teacher might like glare at them. Really, are you asking that to me? And even though it's like, maybe an innocent question, uh, others can find fault in their asking it. Right? They, they find fault in the fact that they would really uh, ask that question. Well, I think what James is saying here is that that's not what God does. It says that he gives generously to all without reproach. That it pleases God to give. That he gives to all people, right? whether you are spiritually mature, whether you're spiritually immature. And he gives without finding fault. He doesn't think to himself, Really? Like, are you asking that to me again? Are you coming back to me again? Shouldn't you be further along already? You, you still haven't figured this out? Like, you still have trouble believing my promises? That's the God who is with us in our trials that James is pointing us to. That he is not only purposeful, but in the second point, he's present, right? That he generously provides. He's good. He cares about us. We can trust him. 
And contrary to what you might feel like in your suffering, God isn't out to get, to get you. Like He's not just trying to expose you for your lack of faith. Rather, he is after your good. He's after your Christ-likeness. He wants to provide you with wisdom so that you might grow. He'll do whatever it takes to get you into maturity. And that includes, I think, as we know, people who know the gospel, right, that includes suffering with us and suffering for us. That in Jesus, we have a sympathetic high priest who knows what suffering is like. That because of Jesus, we can trust that our experience of our trials and our suffering, that they are not an indication of the absence of God's love for us, right? They're not, they don't show us that, oh, God doesn't care about you, God doesn't love you. In fact, it's the very opposite of that, right? The trials and suffering in our lives are proof of God's love for us, that he cares about us so much that he wants to move us more towards uh, perfection and completeness and maturity and Christ-likeness. And let me close with this. I think one of the ways that, that trials makes us more complete uh, is that they make us better friends, counselors, and fellow travelers. Okay, one of the ways that trials make us more complete is that they make us better counselors. They help us to benefit others. And I, I want to mention this because um, I, I don't want you to just walk away with the impression that this is like just all about your own spiritual walk. Like, like, God just uses trials to help you, yourself, level up from level one Christian to level 100 Christian. Or that he just uses trials to, like, constantly expose your own sin, right? Over and over again, there's, there's more that you need to grow in. There's, like, ways that you fall short. Maybe he is, right? That could be true. But I know that if that's all that we're hearing, that that can be discouraging, and so I want to encourage you with this, that, that we need to realize also that maybe God brings trials into our lives, yes, to grow us, but also to grow others as well, right? To grow, to help grow others around us. Uh, there's a passage in 2 Corinthians 1, 3 and 4 that, uh, I really love this passage. Paul says this, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction. Okay, so God, the God of all comfort comforts us in our affliction. For what purpose? Paul says, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. You see what he says there? He says that our experience of trials, our experience of suffering, and the comfort that we receive from God in the midst of them, that all of that is meant to train us and meant to equip us and meant to grow us to show that comfort to others, right? To help others know that same comfort, to helpfully walk with others through their own trial and through their own suffering, right? God's trials in our lives helps us, but it also helps others. It helps the church. It helps the people around you. And a few of my favorite paragraphs from David Pallison uh, came from the end of his book, God's Grace in Your Suffering. And I realize this is probably like my third or fourth sermon where I've closed with a quote from David Pallison, but sorry, not sorry. He says this. He says, What God has to say to us in our trials and our suffering helps us to ask better questions of what's happening. Okay, he says, uh, I'm paraphrasing still. This, in his, this is in his quote. He says that so often that our first reaction to suffering is, Why me? 
right? Why me? Why this? Why, why now? Why, God? Why are you picking on me? But he says, as we begin to turn outward, right, as we begin to see uh, that God has drawn near to us, as we begin to see God's promises come true, that he, has, he can sympathize with us, he can relate to us because he's chosen to suffer himself for us, that we can start to move from asking why me to a better question, which is why you? Why you, Lord of life? Right? Why, you, why would you enter this world of evils? Why would you go through loss and weakness and hardship and sorrow and death? Why would you, God, do this for me of all people? And that brings us to another question. Right? From, from why me to why you, and this is related to what I just said, we can, this is the quote that he says, finally, you are prepared to pose and to mean an almost unimaginable question. And it's this, why not me? Why not this? Why not now? That if in some way your faith might serve as a three-watt nightlight in a very dark world, why not me? If your suffering shows forth the Savior of the world, why not me? If you have the privilege of filling up the sufferings of Christ, if he sanctifies you to your deepest distress, if you fear no evil, if he bears you in his arms, if your weakness demonstrates the power of God to save us from all that is wrong, if your honest struggle shows other strugglers how to land on their feet, if your life becomes a source of hope to others, why not me? If all that God promises only comes true, then why not me? I think what James writes here prepares us to ask that question. It's just why, not, for, not why me? Why is this happening in my life? God tells us. Right? Not just why, why you, Lord. Right? The gospel reminds us that God suffered for us. But even all the way to why not me? Right? If this is for my joy, even for the joy of those around me, then why not me? We can even count our trials and our suffering as pure joy, right? Knowing what God is using that to bring us towards. Let's pray together. God, we thank you that even in our trials that there is a purpose and that you are sovereign and that you're wise and you're loving. And so, Father, I pray that we would really um, take these promises to heart, that you would give us uh, just understanding, give us um, the strength, the ability to, to think harder when it comes to our trials. Make us uh, better sufferers, make us better counselors to others in their suffering. Accomplish that uh, through the, the preaching of your word and also just in our Thomas small groups now. We thank you, Lord, and pray this in Christ's name. Amen.